Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod. Today, I am speaking with Paul Storks, the proposer and now CEO of Drive Chains. Today, we are going to discuss Bitcoin scaling, the limits of existing scaling solutions, what a drive chain is, how a drive chain could potentially scale Bitcoin, and how multiple drive chains and side chains working together could create something really interesting that you call Thunder. So, Paul, before we begin, do you mind just introducing yourself? Because there are a lot of people who are coming into the space and might not have heard of you yet. Sure. Hey, thanks for having me. And uh, happy belated Father's Day. Thank you. You're, you're actually the, only the third person who has wished me a happy Father's Day. Yes. Well, with the Bitcoin dad, I mean, you've got to be <laughs> the Bitcoin Father's Day. You think you'd be rolling out the big party, the Bitcoin Father's barbecue. My daughter did not give me a Bitcoin as a Father's Day gift. I was disappointed. They, you know, they always disappoint you, you know, that's... <laughs> I remember giving my father a chamois to sham the car one Father's Day and Shammy, yeah. A lot of ties. It gave out a lot of ties. The karma comes back. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yes. Well, thanks for having me on. And I am, a, you know, I've been a longtime Bitcoiner. I started this, this uh, I came up with this peer-to-peer -peer Oracle thing a long time ago, about 10 years ago, yes. Did you come up with that because you were a, a student of probability or you were working somewhere? How did My favorite um, website on the whole internet was a place called Intrade, Intrade.com. And this was a place where it, I got into it because I was very into interested in, in politics at a young age, in particular, these debates. And I thought it was so absurd the way these debates were ridiculous, like 30 seconds for your position on, you know, military or like the healthcare, you know, something, some huge topic. And I just thought it was absurd. And then you would cut away. This was back in the television era. They cut away to people and then both of the sides would try to say, oh, clearly such and such won the debate. Oh, clearly such and such won the debate. The whole thing was so stupid. How did Intrade solve this debating problem? Well, it was this completely night and day different thing where no one talked to anyone, no one's opinion depended on what people were, were saying. On in-trade, people would just bet on who they thought would win, and they wouldn't bet on at even odds. It wouldn't be like, I bet you a dollar. It was like a stock market where the candidates had prices. So like if you thought George Bush was going to win, he would trade at 76 cents on the dollar and the price would change every day. So you could you could watch the price, then wait for the debate to happen. And then you could see if the price, you know, what would most often happen is the price wouldn't change at all, which would mean that the debate had no impact. And that made way more sense to me than living in the pretend world. I believe that what you're describing is a prediction market and this interest in politics and maybe sort of uh, establishing what people, how people view a politician without the need for this, like a performative debate, it, it solves this issue. And so is your background in politics or is it in probability or markets? Well, this was even before, this was when I was very young, I was like 12, 13 years old and I found Robin Hanson's blog and then he would link to Intrade sometimes and uh, he and I, I agreed with what he said that th these prices are the real likelihoods of the person being elected and if they don't move then it means that nothing interesting happened today but if they move suddenly then it means something happened like if the price nosedived you would know oh something really happened today that that mattered <laughs> it made it unlikely that this person would win and as i recall in trade did not end well Right. In 2012, it was closed down by the government around when I was getting finding out about Bitcoin. And I thought, well, 
There were these other projects. BitBet was one. There were some things that were kind of doing a similar thing. But I wanted the Oracle itself to be decentralized, which little did I know that would turn out to be like the way history has played out. People have gone with the much simpler idea of just completely trusting one Oracle or trusting a handful. But I wanted to build a whole procedural system that would work with no identities and it would just resolve the the events completely decentralized way. And so this was like a very advanced thing that I was hitting on uh right in the end of 2012, 2013. Intrade was also closed down in part because it was difficult to get money there and back, which is also another kind of parallel Bitcoin. They also misused some of the, the money that was sent there. They did like an MF Global thing where they had like accidentally invested some of it in, in risk-free bonds that turned out to have losses later or something. They, they missed the accounting was bad. The CEO died climbing Mount Everest. So they couldn't repair the accounting for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. He had the private keys to the account. Something like that. So so this was back in the early days. So that was how I first uh, got into the like exotic blockchain technology. And I knew the Oracle was so weird. The only way to add it to Bitcoin would be with like a completely different piece of software. And that, that type of thing later became known as the sidechain. Um, and that's the very beginning. And I started this blog in 2014 to kind of write about these complicated blockchain ideas. And so that was a while ago, nine years ago. And I wrote this essay, Nothing is Cheaper Than Proof of Work. Adam Back linked this essay. And so then I, the kind of that was like my big break. Just to put prediction markets and oracles to bed, my understanding is that there are more sort of Oracle projects in Ethereum than in Bitcoin. And I'm, I'm familiar with, for instance, Chainlink. Right. Chainlink has gotten huge. It, yeah, it's quite big. And frankly, it seems quite speculative. And they solve the Oracle problem, but not really by getting an average of the Oracles and punishing Oracles who are sort of out, outside of some range. I mean, it seems a bit contrived to me. So do you think there is a much better solution than something like Chainlink? And why would a Bitcoin sidechain provide that as opposed to something like Ethereum that has a lot of ex expressive scripting language? Well, this is a very uh, technical matter. But what, what I would say actually is... Um I actually want the end product to work. So I would rather just live in a world that has a prediction market. So if Chainlink happens to be good enough, then I'm like a kind of a happy camper. But what I designed, I think, is much better than Chainlink. I think if Chainlink is weird. Chainlink sort of says, we will give people the opportunity to, this is the last time I looked into it, which was a while ago, but it, Chainlink says, we'll give everyone, we'll give all these people an opportunity to be oracles, and then you can kind of pick the oracles you want, and then we will aggregate them for you. To me, it's something like, like uh, you have something like SpaceX would be what I'm going for, where I say, I have a plan and I think this is what you should do. And then Chainlink is something where it says, well, we are a platform that lets different rocket companies compete. But Chainlink isn't really doing very much. It's just trying to say that you can sign up with them. And, and, and I'm sure they have a token. Yeah, what they're doing is they're pumping a token with the excuse of, hey, we're an oracle. It's very difficult to figure out how much anything on Ethereum is doing because it's just hard to tell because there's a lot of um, people who you might think, like, are they really dedicated to the end user or is this just developers doing stuff for developers in a big uh, circle and then, you know, just people pumping, hype, hyping each other up. And so, so I'm very suspicious of everything on Ethereum still, although Ethereum has changed a lot since 2015 also. In 2015, it was, of course, a terrible project. 
Now it's merely kind of a shady project, but it may continue to evolve. Chainlink does a lot of money, is a lot of money behind Chainlink. So it's a big, uh, so it's doing something. Uh, My thing is slightly different. My thing, the the Chainlink part is itself sort of decentralized. Your thing is Bitcoin hive mind, correct? Yeah, it was originally called Truthcoin, the paper. That was before things were named coin. This is a very technical thing that probably very few people understand. But you can go to BitcoinHiveMind.com and read all about uh, what I did. And we actually have software there. But yeah, what I did was the part is uh, itself decentralized and you can enter or join that at any time. And then I have a similar way of aggregating the answers and trying to figure out who is deviating and punishing that person so that each person has an incentive to find to fall more in line across the whole spectrum of answers given than anyone else. And that is designed to have iterated defection, this idea in game theory, so that at the end of the day, everyone tells 100% of the people involved tell the truth about everything. And if that doesn't happen, then something really, really obvious will happen, like they'll have to lie about everything. So it's like an error correcting thing where either it uh, works perfectly all the time. So it's like you're playing a, a first person shooter game and the error correction locks you onto the your opponent's uh, head, you know, uh, or either that or it, it will defect in like a completely different way where it'll lock you onto like a cloud or something and you'll be able to toggle back to it. So it's all about error correction. I've noticed that there are always a few good video game references in your blog posts. There's a lot about civilization. Yeah, video games are, you know, they're a fun thing fun to play. And uh, a video game is actually a pretty good... Um, I wrote a post about epistemology and a video game is... Uh, it's often a video game contains its own explanation. So like you you play the game and usually it'll say the first instruction will be press start and, uh, and then it will give you more instructions and... And you'll go from someone who knows only how to plug the controller in, like press start, make sure that the controller is plugged in, the game console is plugged into the like television or the display. And uh, and then it explains one each thing in turn. A good video game will teach you each thing in turn, uh, you know, press A to jump, press right to move, press A at the right time, don't run into the Goomba or whatever. So in the, the game will get more and more difficult. And it's a, a good video game is like a piece of music where it starts with a simple theme and then it becomes more complicated. And then it can't be boring, but it can't be indecipherable either. And a video game uh, is really about learning. It's really about teaching people. And so I think since explanations have a fundamental place in our universe, a video game is actually a kind of... De- uh, playing a video game is not that different than doing like physics or something. You know, you, you're dropped into a weird world and you have to figure out how to get from here to the moon or something. I mean, especially if it's a physics video game, I'm thinking of Portal or Kerbal Space Program or something. So, I mean, reading your blogs, I feel like you probably play a lot of Civilization, but is there like a game that you're, you're th- you were thinking of when you were talking about this epistemological structure? Well, I think every game is something like that, where it's holding your it, at the beginning it kind of holds your hand and then at the it eventually reaches a point where it, where it challenges you uh greatly i guess for me this conversation is very different if you're thinking of super mario or you know or if that's like your favorite game super mario versus what versus 
The Witcher Three. It just for me that's that's different because they they do very different things. <laughs> Versus The Witcher Three. Well, that's not really the case. I mean, like so, like if you think of the original Super Mario, has the the first Goomba, and then there's the second Goomba, and what everyone does is they jump on up and they accidentally hit their head on the blocks and they come down faster than they thought and they die to the second Goomba every time. And so the first, so they either just run into the first Goomba and die, and they realize they don't make progress because the game. Clever thing about the game is it resets, and so then you know that you aren't making progress. And uh, but similarly for something like you know, Super Mario 64, you know your spawn and there's little text and it tells you to go into the castle and then you go into the castle and it says oh you know so it's the same principle but hold on is the witcher 3 a broken game because no because the witcher 3 also holds holds your hand uh, at the beginning it might teach you how to swing your sword the menus and yes exactly but there are actually only three events that determine the outcome of the game that you haven't been trained in any of these events. It's whether or not you have a snowball fight with Siri, whether you trust her to have a meeting on her own, and then there's a third thing. Those are the things that determine the game. That's like a classic Witcher thing. You do all this fighting, you fight all these monsters, it's meaningless for the ending. What actually matters is just these random little things that you don't know are significant in the in the moment. Well, I think I would actually just say that that's just the game being a little meta. So I think that wouldn't make any sense in a world where that was the only video game ever made. But in a world with enormous numbers of video games, such as the world we live in, people's tastes have evolved and they want something with even more subtlety. So the type of person who plays plays Witcher 3 is someone who's already played uh, Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, Ocarina of Time, or something that is a more conventional. That's a good point. Yeah, it would it would have to come after those games. That's true. Similarly with anything else, film and music, you don't get like these really weird, like uh, it's hard, like Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Would people really like it as much in a world where there was no Beethoven, Bach, Mozart? Like probably not. They would just be like, this is weird. But they they would love Bach though. But if in a world where people have heard Bach for a hundred years, now this is something new, you know? Yeah, you, like you, the... you couldn't have Shostakovich before Tchaikovsky. Right. On the subject of progression, do we need to have drive chains before we have prediction markets? Or does Bitcoin hive mine stand on its own and act as a prediction market today that, that just works? If I could do it over, I would probably have just launched it as an altcoin because I had no idea how long it would take and I would just be able to like do some kind of experiment. It would be like a Monero where I would say, well, listen, I don't think you should invest in this, but we're in it for the tech. Um, but yeah, that's how I first got into Bitcoin. And then if you accidentally had $100 million, that would be totally cool too, right? You could... Right. I would use that to further, you know, the cypherpunk agenda as I see it, which is very different than I think a lot of other people see it, which... Which would probably involve a yacht called Much Drive Chain, right? <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, some, some sponsors, some hackathons, buy people pizza... Uh, oh, yeah, I have a very different I have a very different view of what uh, what is needed or um, which we could get into. But uh, it's I have very nuanced views and I'm, I'm very critical, actually, of a lot of what happens in Bitcoin. I think a lot of it is um, a lot of the time is misspent. OK, well, let's save that because so it sounds like the current progression of prediction markets is somewhat contingent on drive chains being implemented in Bitcoin, which currently requires two bips to be merged. The Oracle I design does require, yeah, some BIP 300 or something like it. Uh, and I think that it's the best, but it's not, it's, it, mine is designed to operate on a few high value, easy to measure decisions. So like who won the presidency and like, what is the value of the stock market? Like the S&P 500 today on some day, 
And it's designed to do that just very rarely, like a couple times a year for like maybe 50, 60, 200 questions per quarter, something like that. So it's designed to be very tamper resistant, but not very, very high throughput because my goal is only a few, I think a few key questions will give us 99% of the benefit. And those are the ones that they, the ominous they with a capital T, they will try to censor and interfere. And so that's what uh, my goal is to get clear that. And then it will, we'll live in a world that has prediction markets and then people will just decide, well, you know what, you can already get the blockchain prediction markets. So we should just allow everyone, we should have futures market liberalism and we just if two consenting adults want to make sign a financial bet if they want to bet on whether or not it's going to rain tomorrow then if consenting adults want to do that then they should be able be able to and that is the goal of the project so my last question about prediction markets is were you were you influenced by the rationalist community that way die is associated with because when you talk about this i just i was okay the main founder uh, is this guy, Eliezer Yudkowsky, who's now famous for, I mean, he's not like, you know, there's many founders, but he started, uh, I think he started LessWrong.org, which I read a lot of. And he himself was a student of Robin Hanson and also wrote on Robin Hanson's blog, Overcoming Bias, which is the blog I found when I was like 12, 13 years old. And not only did he do that, but also Hal Finney did as well. Hal Finney was a guest author on Robin Hanson's blog, as were a whole group of other people. And in fact, one of the things that Hal Finney wrote about on the blog was in trades conditional prediction market. Uh, I think that was 2008. So yes, the answer is yes. Prediction markets and their potential to provide truth via markets. Yeah, they're very rational aids. And in fact, I think the rationality community, the rationalist community is actually not the most rational of all the communities in the world. <laughs> I think that actually anyone who invests, it's difficult, but this the point is we're, we're backing the right tool. I think people form little cults no matter what the group is, but we're backing the right tool. So you'd say, it doesn't matter what it's called. We could be called the irrational community. As long as we back this prediction market thing, it's a tool, it's a temperature, it's a thermometer, you know? It's in a completely irrational world. You can hold this device up to something and get a measurement. And then you can say, well, you can kind of wring your hands, but at the end of the day, you can wring your hands and you should because the temperature may not, the, the thermometer may not be perfect. It may be, there are many refinements to make the prediction markets as good as they can be. But at the end of the day, you have to, this is a powerful tool for rationality. Very powerful. You seem to be motivated by a desire for rationality or more rationality. And you noticed how Bitcoin sort of coincided with this community. Well, I, I was getting into Bitcoin kind of like at the same time, just coincidentally. So the, I read the Silk Road article about Bitcoin in, in like the end of 2011. And then I was like, oh, okay, like regular people are already using this to buy drugs. So I was like, it's too late. It's already gone mainstream. It already has real <laughs> users. It's too late to invest. So that's kind of what I was thinking back then in 2011, 2012. And then um, this is why uh, we're not you're not taking this call from your jet <laughs> because you were too late in 2011. Uh, I suppose. Yeah, I thought something like that. So I was ha I just happened to have been getting into it. And with prediction markets, uh, I had already been into them for like whatever, 10 long time, very long time. 
And uh, so it wasn't as though I got into Bitcoin because of prediction markets. But what I did get into is I got into starting getting into Bitcoin and I thought I really care about prediction markets and they are struggling. They are being censored in the same way DigiCash was shut down, uh, Liberty Reserve. I thought this is a parallel. Yeah. And they had banking problems and then they were regulated. So obviously there's this decentralized payment layer and there's some potential there. But how did you get to drive chain. I designed the sidechain, the Truthcoin, Bitcoin Hivemind, uh, prediction market, decentralized Oracle thing as its own blockchain. And this got me into blockchain design. And as a result, even though everything, there were so many scams and there still are, and I was a v- happy participant in the Bitcoin Uncensored days of 2016 of the scam busting uh, of like these terrible blockchain projects. Uh, while th- most blockchain projects were scams, since I had one that I knew was pretty good, <laughs> my own, I could never really ditch the idea that there wasn't a future of experimentation. And I stayed involved with like other things like Namecoin, um, the like storage, Filecoin, Sia type projects that were decent. So I knew that there were some people who wanted additional features, Zcash, uh, Monero. I knew that there was some viability to the other designs, or at least I thought there was. And I knew that also, I knew something like, I've invented this thing. It's really, really hard for people to understand. Most people are not going to, a lot like Bitcoin, a lot, most people are not going to understand it. But if you just turned it on and started using it, you would find that it actually is, it basically works. You can bet on things and it actually, the software will get the right answer. And as a result, what you bet on happening today will produce prices today. And since the future prices will be set by the Oracle, you can bet today if you know that, you know, whatever, Joe Biden is not going to run or whatever future event is going to happen. You can do that. And I knew that this I also knew that this because I had this partially a background in finance. I had a background in economics, uh, applied math, finance. Um, so I knew that you I knew about uh, what Arthur Hayes gets kind of some credit for this now, but it was called portfolio replication or the idea that you can you can enter a bet with all you need is the oracle and you can enter a bet with someone on like what is the price of the US dollar or the price of uh gold and then it's as if you're holding gold financially so you have synthetic bit USD or bit gold or what you might call t- today would you be called a stable coin right he he would talk about this because bitmex but is an unbacked stable coin sta- stable coin backed only by BTC Right, because BitMEX didn't have U.S. dollar accounts, so you could create synthetic U.S. dollars by selling the upside of your Bitcoin position. Precisely. So if the price of Bitcoin was $100, you'd, you'd enter into this contract, you'd put a Bitcoin in there, and then if the price of Bitcoin crashed to $10, you would take out, it would let you take out 10 Bitcoin, the contract would. And uh, if the, if the, instead the price of Bitcoin went up from $100 to whatever, $120, then you would get whatever that is, uh, one divided by 1.2, which would be something like whatever, 808 something. Obviously it's contingent on your counterparties, you know, exit like liquidity and they might go bankrupt. Indeed. But this was the whole point is that if the prediction market, if the Oracle would tell you what number it should be. And then Robin Hansen had invented this other thing that no one really understood at all in the world, except for him and one other guy who worked for Microsoft that I found on the internet. And then eventually me called the market scoring rule. And this market scoring rule was the thing where you it would just be this atomic update. You would just interact with it and you would put the coins in and it would keep track of everything that would happen and then it would pay everyone out the right way. And this later became the AMMs in because I explained it to Vitalik Buterin. <laughs> well, he read my, you know, he diligently read what I wrote 
back in 2013, 2014. And he, he recognized as I did that it's perfect for a blockchain scheme that uh, where each interperson just interacts with it once. And as long as you have an ordered list of what happened, it will do all the work for you. So that, so this was like, uh, ended up being a big thing because the AMM thing that is this super obscure thing that Robin Hanson wrote this kind of paper about is now controlling, you know, whatever, billions of dollars algorithmically of money. And it could control this uh, stablecoin concept unbacked stablecoin also i now agree with you i think you did make a mistake you should have been an altcoiner right i think it probably would have been better to get the ideas out uh, faster i had always assumed so the, how this leads into drive chain and bit 300 was i had already always assumed that bitcoin would simply adopt the sidechain and then all of the ideas which i assumed there would just be very many would just explode onto the scene once there was like a non-scam way of doing them. Your concept of a sidechain, did this come from the Liquid sidechain and Elements D? No, of course not. Liquid was not even like proposed until 20, late 2016, 2017, early 2017. So that was uh, long, uh, long after Blockstream in October 2014 wrote a paper about a bilaterally pegged uh, sidechain. Luke Dash Jr., I think in December 2013, kind of like coined the phrase or something like that. So it was December 2013 was the idea of everyone always knew that you could up, we would have to keep upgrading Bitcoin, the software. And there was an idea, what if the upgrade is so weird that it's just not compatible, like a hard fork? And people said, well, what we could do is you could make it so that you can move the coins one way, but not back. And then that way you could hard fork, but keep everyone and people wouldn't have to upgrade. We could we could drag along this people who didn't want the upgrade. They could use the old version of the software. And then anyone who wanted the new version could opt into that. And they, but it would only go one way. But then the idea was always, huh, well, we can make it go one way. But what if we wanted to give the option of it going back the second way, the two way peg? And that was the like the holy grail idea. And then I waited for Blockstream to work on that idea while I worked on the peer-to-peer -peer prediction market software. And then something kind of strange happened where they came out with their idea and it was this uh, SPV, uh, the skip list peg thing. And it was kind of like, okay. And I thought I sat down to like implement their idea basically because I had written the sidechain part and then I was now going to connect it to Bitcoin. I had written the sidechain specific rules like the Oracle part. So I had written the Oracle part and the trading. Did you just write this in your spare time? No, no, no. Actually, believe it or not, Roger Veer, I was working uh, in academia and Roger Veer uh, and also also Blockstream. Blockstream contacted me in, I think, let me try to remember what year this was. I think it was, how it worked out was, it was December, it was November 2014. So Blockstream wrote their paper in October 2014. And then the next, then I started using the sidechain term to like popularize the idea that I had. And then I was like, people were like, what, what is a sidechain? And I was like, this thing. So then I started to get a little bit of tiny bit of fame and notoriety. And then in November, Blockstream contacted me with like, they were going to offer some kind of uh, partnership, but they wanted to check with their lawyers about, uh, they were in Canada and they were like US prediction markets. They were kind of interested in that. And then Roger Veer contacted me in December, December, 2014. And Roger Veer was like, he could give an F about lawyers. <laughs> so he was like, hired me on the spot. We're talking about enabling blockchain innovations with pegged sidechains. That's the paper we're talking That's about. That's the October, 2014. Yes. 
But Luke Dasher is on here. Did he work for Blockstream? He was a contractor for Blockstream, but then not not everyone who co-authored that paper. In fact, that paper like basically predates Blockstream. You should, I think, if you check the footnotes, it'll say something like some of these co-authors went on to form a company or something like that. The first version of the paper, I think, Blockstream hadn't even been formed yet. Yeah, that that's the first footnote. Yeah. So, of course, just for our listeners who might not know, Roger Ver is famous as first the Bitcoin Jesus because he was this huge Bitcoin promoter, and then the Bitcoin Judas because he turned on Bitcoin and went and and pushed for Bitcoin Cash because my sense is that some businesses that he had invested in, essentially their business models were unviable at slightly higher fee levels. And so that meant that big blocks were the only option for those investments to work out. And so that pushed him towards big blocks and he sort of was discredited by the the scaling war. But you see, in, in my story, you get to see a little bit about the the advantages of Roger Veer, which were that like he he was an early investor in very many things, some of which later kind of became weirdo anti-Bitcoin, like he was an early investor in Ripple but and lots of things. So he invested in lots of stuff, blockchain.info, I think, Coinbase, I think, Kraken. I'm pretty sure all these things. So he, he was into a lot of stuff early and a lot of his decisions were spot on, you know, like certainly worth like, and he invested his own Bitcoin you know, even though he was someone who believed that the coins he was giving away today would later be worth <laughs> enormous amounts of money. So he was a real, he was a Bitcoin and he was very popular at the time. So for example, scaling Bitcoin one, that was in September, 2015, the next year. So now we fast forward a year, uh, someone from Blockstream, one of the co-authors of that paper and a Blockstream co-founder, they came up to me at the event and they said, oh, we're so happy. Like we regret that we we, we really wanted to work something out with you. And we're so happy that Roger was able to hire you so that you could work on this. Everyone was very good friends at the time. <laughs> it's good to remember that, you know, a lot of people have, you know, really interesting histories in this space. And I guess from a certain point of view, a lot of Bitcoiners might view Roger Vera as a villain today, but he wasn't always. Right. And it's also like a, kind of like the narratives have become more simple. I mean, I hate to interrupt you there, but it's just very important that people understand if you join later and you didn't live through something, the scaling war it forced uh, collective opinion on the Bitcoin community pre-scaling war. Bitcoin was really a lot of misfits and people with just really weird ideas, but just kind of collaborating. And then after the scaling war, there was very much like a you're either with us or against us. And all the narratives became very, very simple, like so simple that they're just like this person good, this person bad. And uh, that is a, ca- a casualty of the scaling war. And that's actually been sort of a theme on this podcast and the conversations we've had. I don't know if you're if you've listened, but Chris, my co-host, and I, we began to talk because we weren't hearing a more nuanced, kind of interesting look at where Bitcoin could go in its history. Like, if you wanted an alternative point of view to sort of a very small block libertarian, like conflating Bitcoin technology with certain political ideologies, isn't necessarily correct in my view. I think there's space for a lot of different ideologies here. So. I, we didn't want to have to go and listen to, you know, some Ethereum podcast to get a different opinion. And so that, you know, that's that's obviously kind of kind of a goal to be a little bit more nuanced around these issues. And I think this leads to what you hinted at, which was a conversation about how Bitcoin has sort of wasted a lot of time. Yeah, that is my opinion. I think certainly like it's not this what I would later learn as all these years, uh, you know, go by 
is that the sidechain idea is not, uh, it's not going slow because of a lack of, like, it's not actually hard. There's just a lack of willpower to do it because it's a variety of things. But one is that people want to make a career out of working on Bitcoin core. They want the prestige. Uh, another thing is that you ha- no one wants to admit that everyone wants, inst- everyone wants there to be like one piece of software that is just the best. No one wants to admit that all the use cases are different, even though that's ridiculous. Like, so for example, if you, let's say you're Ross Albright and you run Silk Road illegally and you're breaking the law and you're breaking lots of laws and you have your Bitcoin that you get from Silk Road, but you also want to go down the street as Ross, you know, your your dread pirate Roberts and you have your Bitcoin there. And you want to also buy coffee as a as Ross Albright in the real world, and you want to buy a Starbucks gift card or something. Well, as long as he's carefully managing his uh, Bitcoin flows, he doesn't really need the same level of privacy and decentralization for the coffee transaction as he does for whatever his illegal Silk Road Empire. Uh, transaction. And so that's just an example of just how different some of the use cases are. This seems to touch on your blog post about the limits of lightning, because I what I'm hearing is we all want one piece of software. It almost feels like after 2018, we all wanted one scaling solution and decided on lightning. But as you point out, lightning is quite limited in its ability to onboard users. And if you want to onboard a large number of users, you have to make some preposterous assumptions to make those numbers work for Lightning. Right. And in fact, uh, now everyone is going to switch to saying that Arc is the best thing partly for that reason. Uh, so now the, if you listen to like Barack explain Arc, he usually will say, and he also worked for Blockstream uh, at some point, And he said like, uh, you know, he's like, he's a big critic of Lightning and he doesn't think that like Lightning will, will work. But, but this is partly the fault of the scaling war has again, simplified all the narratives to the point where the people who are Lightning haters are all like large blockers who are wrong. Everyone else has to love lightning and say that it's the Messiah and it's going to save the day. And uh, now the smart people finally have a way off uh, this sort of ship, the small blockers who are technical in the form of ARC. And uh, so it's only, yes, it's only been, what is it, a year and two or three months? 1.25 years since I wrote that uh, article. And now everyone is uh, kind of uh, in agreement with it. Although, of course, it was heretical to say at the time. I don't quite understand how ARC gives everybody an out. There's a ARC is a way of like sharing and so is BIP 300 and so is CTV. What ARC, BIP 300 and CTV do is there's one UTXO that is it, it has the feature. It was, it was one coin or something, a coin that may be like 0.23 BTC. There's one registry, a UTXO that uh, it is sort of there's nothing on layer one describing where it will go yet, but it is in practice constrained that it can it will be split among a group of people. And what sometimes and I think uh, tap leaf update verify uh, would hypothetically be able to do this too. But in my view, that's just kind of like this is a complicated matter. But basically, the you have a you have a, a UTXO sharing idea where some some of the rules of the blockchain will make it so that you don't own this UTXO on layer one yet, but you know that you could take ownership of uh, of like whatever part of it. But but since that's expensive, you won't do that. But you could. And BIP three hundred is kind of like takes us to an extreme where it says you ha- you're on a completely different chain. You can buy sell 
por- portions of the coin over there, and then at the end of the day, it just synchronizes once every once every period with the miners, and the synchronization is totally arbitrary to the point where you may have all of your money stolen, but you probably won't. And an intriguing thing about this idea is when I had it at the time, I merely thought it would be one of many different ideas for scaling Bitcoin. And I thought it would it would be clearly the right thing for all the large blockers, since the large blockers already didn't care as much about nodes and really didn't believe in minor theft at all. And they really cared about SPV mode and they thought it was the way to go. So they, they were totally willing to take the risk. They thought hash wars were going to resolve disputes on chain or something. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. So they so they didn't uh they were less technical, which is why part of why they lost. But the the point is that they were clearly game for taking this risk and uh, that was the only risk. I needed for them to take and then they would have the large blocks that they wanted, you know, immediately. And they would never have had to split off and leave or do any of this drama or do hard fork drama or or campaign. Right. And 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 clearly that would never have worked because you would not have been able to explain what you were doing to large blockers. Yeah, unfortunately, the the fact that the large block both of the sides were determined that they they really believed that they each of them believed that they would win. They were both very confident that they would win. And that was bad news for me because I had an idea that would have let everyone get what they want staying together. But people didn't want that. They wanted to win. And then they would be the big on the totem pole. They would be the highest having defeat. And this is exactly what happened. They were right. Uh, The small blockers were right. (laughs) Of course, the large blockers were wrong. But the small blockers who bet people like, uh, you know, Samson Mao or people who don't really do much, speaking frankly, they knew that they would get a huge boost just by backing the winning side. And they backed the winning side and they they gassed. They they poured fuel on the fire and hit the accelerator. And uh, they benefited. And then someone like me who tried to like broker this uh, win-win situation, that was terrible because they, after fighting and winning, the last thing they wanted to do was drag the people along. And then by leaving the, the large blockers, those would have been like my customers for the large block sidechain. But now once they leave to go to Bitcoin Cash, the last thing they want is for BTC to get large blocks somehow. So that unfortunately was, in my view, the worst thing like to happen to Bitcoin, basically. The, the failure of Blockstream to deliver sidechains and the the forking of the community into two, even though it resulted pretty quickly in one side winning. The the other side clings to ho- false hope continuously to this day, and they it, it would be better if we were all just united against the banks, which is the whole point of Bitcoin, in my opinion. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that because when the large and small blockers split off, you sort of lose kind of diversity of opinion in the Bitcoin community. The large block community is just this toxic scam pit, you know, with Craig Wright and whoever essentially fleecing people who sign on to that community. But then on the small block side, we're kind of stuck with Luke Dasher, who never wants an upgrade, or Peter Todd, who thinks, you know, why do we even need consensus or something? And and as a result, we have um, not as much development. And that gives space to the altcoin scammers to do a little bit of development, but actually the real point is pumping and dumping tokens. Right. That's a pretty good summary. I mean, Luke Dash Jr., he does believe in development and he, but, but you're, you're right. There's a, there's like a, there's like a cadre. Uh, yeah. Like a Peter Todd partially, ma- I like Peter Todd a lot actually, but, uh, but he partially makes his career out of just like being a, a critic, like a devil's advocate or whatever. And uh, similarly, like a John Carvalho. Uh, but really now this idea has filtered up into my 
Michael Saylor, who now just thinks he's like pro-ossification, but I don't think he really knows what that means. Uh, in particular, I doubt that he understands like, I, I would be surprised to learn that he works on software himself and he understands like dependencies and and just exactly what it takes in practice. Like, you know, all the operating system is changing around you, right? The dependencies are changing around you all the time. So if you just say, I will never upgrade, you are really handcuffing yourself to like an anchor and throwing it into the ocean, which is like, you may survive that. I mean, Bitcoin would not survive if it had to run on Windows 8, you know, that wouldn't work. Right, exactly. Like you must run it on Windows 98. And so and then it would be like, okay, everyone, the vision is everyone runs the latest version of Windows, and then they run a Windows 98 emulator, and then they run Bitcoin. Like, it's just, uh, I just don't think like the people who work on software actually understand that the this is another mysterious thing is that uh, in Bitcoin core development, there can be 1000s of pull requests merged, any one of those could be like a key logger or something that just, you know, like a cert zero just crashes the software if a certain action is performed uh, or anything bad. But if it's like, if it's a soft fork protocol upgrade, then this is all of a sudden, this is treated with enormous, like it's like, a, it's like so serious. But uh, I think to those of us who understand, I would, can count myself and Jeremy Rubin, anyone who like works on a soft fork. It's like, you know, a soft fork is really not, uh, what about the other thousands of pull requests? The soft, a soft fork, you can turn it on and then you can just turn it off <laughs> with the, the miners can just filter out the soft fork messages. So there's really zero risk. There's even less risk for a soft fork upgrade than there are for many of these other um, of which there are countless countless things being merged or there's superfluous things like tests so there's like bitcoin core development but there's just you know pointless tests or there's just pointless refactoring or there's like tiny speed up but any of these pull requests could have something malicious it's, it's quite likely that they don't and people take, keep an eye on them but yeah i don't you know like the ossification point of view is something that someone with who doesn't have a lot of firsthand knowledge, you know, it's like someone who knows nothing about plumbing or something, someone coming in and say, well, just do it right the first time and then don't change it. And it's like, well, listen, you know, from really far away, that's a great sounding story. But what about when you want to add a dishwasher to your kitchen? Like, it's like, why don't you just let us do <laughs> the, at the end of the day, you should just let us do the best thing for the software. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but I understand that it's about consensus as well. Like I proposed this idea and I have never really tried to ram it through Bitcoin. I have always like sort of waited patiently for people to agree that it is the right thing to do. But yes, you can see now that that I proposed the idea in November 2015. And I now think that also that was a mistake. I think if I'd been more aggressive with this idea, we would never have had Ethereum in the first place. We would never have had Bitcoin Cash. Everyone would be in Bitcoin. There, the scam altcoins would not have existed. The NFT craze would have been on Bitcoin much earlier. And people would actually live in a world with digital collectibles. And they would know that Bitcoin is the path to getting those and that those are not real like investments, but they are digital collectibles and you pay transaction fees with Bitcoin and you buy and sell them with Bitcoin and everyone would just be a Bitcoiner and there would be no crypto and there would be the scaling also would have happened there instead of now, which is like, so as I was trying to say quite a while ago, um, I, I thought this would just be one scaling idea among many, but actually as the years go on, there are, uh, there seem to be extremely large fundamental problems with every other scaling solution. And I now think that mine is the, the best or perhaps even the only practical way to scale Bitcoin to the required size because of the way the network effects work in money. If you have, you know, you have two versions of Bitcoin, 
maybe one's quote better than the other, but if one is is accepted everywhere in every store and every landlord, and that's the one that's going to win. So in the end, it is a popularity contest. I think that leads us nicely to Bitcoin scaling. You think that drive chains are the way to go, but what are we comparing them to? Yeah, I do now. I only kind of recently thought, when I wrote the Thunder blog post, that was when I really thought, uh, like I really thought actually this idea is, this is just the idea and the other ideas are kind of doomed. Every other idea, including Lightning, you know, Arc, CoinPool. First of all, an unfortunate thing has happened. I have to impress upon the poor listener that an, an unfortunate thing, the word Lightning, much like the word blockchain in 2016, the word now refers to all kinds of things, including custodial Lightning, which is a neat trick. That's a little bit like a unhosted wallet or whatever they were called. Like a uh, custodial Lightning, it does not use Lightning and it does not use Bitcoin either. It is accounting. It is a it is a complete sham in every sense of the word. And the fact that it uses Lightning is the worst. The fact that it uses the word Lightning is the worst thing about it. But the problem is, if you remove custodial Lightning from the accounting of Lightning, then I believe Lightning looks. A lot less successful. Yes, because of course, to use Lightning the right way requires that each person who joins the Lightning network first acquire some Bitcoin and then broadcast on layer one a channel open with someone else. And this results in a multi signature output being broadcast uh, to the blockchain. And then you can only spend money like in the channel that, you know, in order for you to spend money, there has to be money on your side of the channel. And in order for you to receive money, there has to be money that they lock up on their side of the channel. So there's big liquidity problems. The liquidity is huge issue. But just to onboard the number of people, they, only so many transactions can fit in layer one block, like 2000 or so. And even though, you know, it's like 2000 is a small number. So even if you do it all day, 144 blocks a day, a thousand blocks a week, a uh, thousand blocks a week, that's only 2 million people per week uh, can possibly join with one single channel. And the channels, you know, occasionally have an issue where one thing in practice, I'm going to mix here. I'm just giving you a, a mix of fundamental objections, but also highly practical knowledge and uh, stuff that is not necessarily fundamental, but in practice, you know, will work. in practice, a big disadvantage to the Lightning Network is that if you and your channel counterparty or anyone along the channel circuit, if you just disagree on what the fee rate, current fee rate is, it will uncooperative close the channel. And when an uncooperative closes, the one person is going to be have their funds locked for two weeks, inaccessible, and it's dragged on chain where it uses three times as many bytes as just a normal Bitcoin transaction would, because you have to have the whole thing with HTLC and uh, like uh, you have to like back everything out. This all like if branch it depends slightly. It's uh, but the uncooperative close requires all this extra information. Then you have to open a new channel <laughs> and then start over. So the you're kind of making a little bit of a bet when you open the channel that the channel will work out for you. But then if it doesn't, then you you're going to end up paying consequences. more. Then you would and have this otherwise. whole thing of it not working out is just if you disagree about what the fee rate is. If you have a fee rate that you're willing to pay and the other person is not, then it creates this region where you're not comfortable taking the channel in that way, but they are, so you can't work with them. And you, so the, there's all these details you could do, but just really, there's a lot of risk that the channel will close. There's a lot of risk that the channel will harm your privacy or something of that nature. And it's just, you cannot, we can only make so many channels in a given point in time and it's very unlikely that they will last you the rest of their life i've tried but to do survey research about this and some people claim that they have channels that have been open for more than a year or that they've never closed 
Uh, that, well, that's definitely true in my case, but I'm not a super heavy user, so I don't know if that's particularly meaningful. Yeah, a lot of the people using it are the early adopters, and they're they're experimenting with it, and they're highly technical people. Uh, it's not they're not relying on this the same way they rely on you know Visa or whatever to actually buy food and things. So the, uh, the Lightning Network uh, in, fundamentally can only onboard so many people. Uh, these other things, coin pools, but but no matter what it is, even ARC, everything has this one really tricky issue, which is the dust UTXOs. So if we live in a world where the fee rates are high or go up, um, let's say, for example, that you want to be paid $5 from someone. You want to sell a bottle of water or whatever. And you want to sell it for $2. Or you want to just make some payment. I remember doing some research that said something like half of all payments are, were less than $20. This was like a couple of years ago. So there's been some inflation since. But uh, So you want to do some payment that's $5, let's say. And the fee rates were $0.80, cents, but now they go up to $8. $8 per 220 bytes on layer one Bitcoin. Well, now... It's uh, the a, a UTXO containing five dollars worth of Bitcoin. That is now dust, which is to say. It costs more to spend than you would actually get. So if you want your net worth to go up instead of down, you should just drop this UTXO and forget forget that it ever existed. You should just surrender the five dollars. How many five dollar or less UTXOs are there? Precisely. Yeah. Well, the issue, the real issue is that in equilibrium, new ones would be created all the time, right? Because the per actual economic purchasing power of most transactions will be is, is it just is what it is. It's some distribution priced in U.S. dollar terms. But as Bitcoin adopt, as the Bitcoin blockchain becomes more adopted, the price of Bitcoin will go up. Sure. But the value of the block space um, may go up as well. Uh, if it does, then uh, the or just because of ordinals or some other thing, if the fee rates go up, it will consume these U dust UTXOs, which will mean that even in something like ARC, it's kind of pointless to even make them because there's no you have no reason to actually redeem them. You're just kind of really hoping that. So what you mean is if you own a small amount of ARC Bitcoin or whatever the token is called there, you can't actually withdraw it. So do you really own it? Yeah, you would never want to. So you really don't own it. You're really just kind of hoping it, hoping that you own it. And uh, maybe you hope for long enough to accumulate them and, and merge them all into a bigger account, which would probably be how it would work. But how how does a drive chain solve this? Well, what drive chain does is it just kind of bites the bullet. Yeah, it says that uh, the idea is that uh, there's so much flexibility on the second chain. What DriveChain does is it bets everything against one certain risk and tries to minimize that one risk. And then other than that, you have no other problem. So the big thing is the the, the major downside to DriveChain is that the miners can assert the state. They can assert if you want to withdraw the coins, miners have to agree and they have to upvote the withdrawal and it takes three months. Uh, and so this is like a huge, uh, this is like the drawback. But th we put in many things to minimize the risk of anything bad happening with this um, withdrawal. So the first and most obvious is that the miners get paid the transaction fees from all the side chains and they also benefit when the Bitcoin price doesn't crash. So the miners have an incentive to keep all these things as like the goose that lays the golden egg, so to speak. They're churning out huge transaction fees in the ideal 
Bill Equilibrium case. And also the fact that the coin can do anything would probably keep the price flying high. Does the political reality of corporate miners who are regulated by national governments change that logic? I don't think so, because the reason is the the way mining works, like it, it, when push comes to shove, it, Bitcoin will not be valuable at all if it competes along the same lines as Venmo or something. So the, the price would just be zero. And I think on some level, miners are aware of that. Like they can do some trivial trivial thing where they refuse themselves to include a transaction in a block, but then the next miner does. But they cannot like scorched earth orphan any transaction that spends to a certain list because if they do, it just means that there is nothing new about Bitcoin compared to you know the existing payments world because the whole Bitcoin premise is that it will be uh, politically neutral. It doesn't matter what miners believe. I'm familiar with corporate structures. If the compliance department comes to the CTO and says, the US government says we need to orphan any blocks with non-compliant transactions, they're going to do that. And I think the we're, with respect to that question, I think that it, it would either go two ways where they would either say, well, we can't we can't do that for, for the reason I'm about to explain. Or they, they do it and then, like, just think about it like this. The people who make the, the orphaning decision, the job negotiation, is actually the mining pools. And the pools are, you know, they have no, no capital investment. They're just like a brand, basically. And so if they drop the transactions, then the hashers will just switch pools to someone who makes them more money because every lost transaction is just giving up transaction fees for free. And so if they orphan, then they will just end up on the chain that has all the people who aren't as interested in making money. And I think that that will, that will not get them anywhere. Everyone will jump ship at an accelerating rate. Could Stratum affect this? No, I don't think it does. People love Stratum, but they, they don't really know anything. Stratum is like a thing that people who don't mind like to talk about. But Stratum, Stratum does many non-controversial things that are good, such as uh, helps with like authentication and stuff. What people really mean when they talk about Stratum V2 is they're talking about the job negotiation part. But the job negotiation is just a way for the miner to propose something to the pool. The pool can still accept or reject the job. So actually, Stratum doesn't change this at all, despite what you may have heard on Twitter. Uh, don't believe everything you hear on Twitter. Stratum doesn't really change this at all. What Stratum does maybe do is it maybe lets you prove to the world that you suggested a higher paying job to the pool and they didn't take it. But you can kind of already do that by just showing the transaction to the world. So it doesn't really do anything. But this, I, but you're thinking along the right lines. The, the right way to do this, to get around this issue, is to just make it as easy as possible to start a new pool, uh, which is one of the things that I, if our company raised a ton, we raised only a tiny first round of $3 million, but if we raised a much bigger round, which we may plan on doing, this is one of the things we would fund is just uh, like an open source mining pool just to try to drive down. No offense to my friends who many of my friends are, you know, mining pool operators and, uh, you know, no offense to them. But the ideal thing for Bitcoin is to absolutely drive down the cost of starting a new pool to zero and drive down the pool profitability to basically nothing. And so that the pools are like, you know, Malthusian subsistence farmers living hand to mouth and they uh, they have no actual uh, power of any kind. They already don't have very much power, though. There goes your Christmas card. I know. I know. They're really going to activate BIP300 now. Deactivate. <laughs> if I can summarize, your critique of current scaling proposals like Lightning, 
Arc, join pool is that these shared UTXO models, they fail for low value transactions because as the Bitcoin price and block space uh, sort of in- increases, you, you know, a lot of low value transactions cannot economically be transacted on the main chain. So if you're doing a low value transaction on a layer two protocol, it's not actually secure because you can't settle on chain economically. Is that the core of your critique? Well, they what they are is they're all very obsessed with making absolutely certain that you can unilaterally withdraw. What they all have is their philosophical anchor is this belief that you should be able to take with certainty your coins and put them on layer one and get and get out of this thing. So it's fully consensual and you can back out at any time and you will always be able, your money will really be there waiting for you. It's like an anti-fractional reserve type of obsession. And in the past, I thought, well, that's kind of fine, but maybe just relax that a tiny bit in the name of just making something that, because in the real world, we really compete with custodial. We compete with custodial lightning, which does not, obviously does not make that guarantee at all. It's just an account. So I said, can we just relax that one or two clicks, tiny little, a tiny little bit, still have coins controlled by keys, still have procedural generation of blocks, still have no identities, They'll just have a peer-to-peer node network. Um, But just relax it just a little smidge because these large blockers out here, because remember I wrote this idea in 2015 before the block size war had even started really or concluded. Um, I said these large blockers are willing to cheat and this is what they want. So everyone will just get what they want. And the the small block group and the technical community and Bitcoin dev mailing lists, uh, they are absolutely obsessed with this idea that it should, they never want to violate the property rights of security one tiny, tiny bit, even if the user fully consents to it. Uh, They would rather people end up using custodial lightning, where actually the property rights are completely destroyed, uh, rather than back an idea that officially endorses any kind of smidge of security. So as a result of their obsession with you being able to go to L1 at any time, they just suffer from the idea that if the L1 fees rise, then they will have dust UTXOs and they will those dust UTXOes will never work. Uh, and uh, they so it will be eternally unviable. Also, in the case of Lightning, it's just impossible for a given number of people to join the network, uh, which is the same thing. Because in order for you to get this guarantee, someone has to opt in to the scheme on layer one. And so those people need to opt in with the coins. They need to, uh, a key is that in Arc and in Lightning and whatever, everything, even Bit300, someone has to move the coins into the L2. Uh, in in my scheme, that is just a rich guy who wants to buy a lot of stuff. That would be like a Roger Veer. He'd use one layer one transaction to deposit to Thunder and he would move whatever, 50,000 coins. And then he'd start onboarding people over there. And over there, they would not have the guarantee that they would be able to make it to L1, but they would never want to go to L1 anyway. No one would use L1. It would be like the, the Fed or the Bank of International Settlements where regular people have never heard of it and they never use it. And they're very happy and they live there. They're, they're born, they live and they die and they've never heard of the Bank of International Settlements. That's what I have in mind. That's quite a soundbite. Now, uh, you explained drive chains at a high level in our last conversation, and I'm going to try to regurgitate that at a high level so that we can get to drive chains and then get to thunder. So please correct me, but a drive chain is essentially an address on the Bitcoin blockchain that anyone can spend from, but you can only spend if you have a couple of acts 
from a minor, from an acknowledgement. And so you can only spend if minors agree to spend from that address. And so every block, they can increase the agreement counter until you hit a threshold, and then you can now spend. But they can also decrease this agreement threshold. So if miners are fighting over what to do with this block, they can kind of block each other, potentially, if their hash rates are similar. And when you send Bitcoin into this address that's secured by miners, a drive chain node is watching this address. And when it sees a transaction come in, it mints drive chains on the drive chain blockchain, which is a separate blockchain. And that blockchain could have any rules, but it's probably going to be governed by private keys because that transaction that you send coins in needs to somehow generate coins on the drive chain. And the clever thing about this, as opposed to liquid, this is a two-way peg because the ability of miners to sort of up and down vote a transaction that withdraws, this transaction comes from drive chain participants who want to peg out. And your way of mitigating the risk of miners just stealing all the coins is to make sure that these pegouts happen very slowly, a maximum of four per year. Is that the broad stroke? Is that okay? Well, yes, this is a lot of a broad strokes. Uh, I would say the what we do is we cover three, well, the, the sidechain will automatically, the sidechain full node software, it automatically has like these eras, which are like three or four per year, three months. And it will look and it will say all the outstanding sidechain activity, deposits and withdrawals. It just covers all of that with one hash. So this is the real hash. So the, so what we've done is we've shrunk the problem of checking every single thing that's happened on the sidechain. Is all the data available? Are all the blocks valid? Is every transaction in every block valid? Who has all the transactions? Blah, blah, blah. I shrink the whole problem from that, which is very big. And that problem increases as the size of the sidechain blocks increases. It's from this big increasing problem, I just shrink that to just this, this hash. One hash every quarter. And that doesn't change no matter how complex the sidechain's rules are, what its block size is. It's just this is this hash reported by the sidechain. So the hash is reporting in and it reports this. So I've shrunk the whole problem from just one thing. It's imagining like you have, a, you know, you have a special computer in your house and it just has the hash. And it's the same thing every day for three months. And then it clicks over on. And is this just a hash in the op return field? This is the sidechain is just reporting that this is what it believes the state of the, but what it actually is, is it will be the withdrawal transaction idea in layer one with a couple details smoothed over. But that's basically what it is. It's saying this is the TXID that should make it into layer one. But it only says this on layer two. And then I just say the miners, well, you know, right now the, the miners have to do all these jobs. They have to do, they have to get cheap electricity. They have to get um, cheap electricity. They have to get like uh, cooling. They have to hire people. They have to get the efficient ASIC chips. They have to con contact the right pools. So they're doing a lot of stuff. And I say, well, on top of that, while they work, like you're just hanging out on the hammock doing nothing. You give them yet another task. You say, make sure this hash is right. And they can run a sidechain node to do that, or they could just not. It doesn't really matter. Layer one node's not going to check the hash, but the whole the goal is that the mine it's the part of the miner's job now. And this is actually a tiny, tiny thing compared to all that other stuff they're doing, which is huge. Um, and so they do this, and then in return, they get all the transaction fees from the sidechain uh, streaming in on a continuous rate, because with merge mining, they get them every block. They don't get them in a big lump. They get them every block. Oh, so they're actually getting 
Bitcoin fees from sidechain activity, not just withdrawal right. and deposit transactions. Precisely. They also get them from the withdrawal and deposit transactions, but they the real benefit is they get it every time any message is done on layer two. And uh, through something called the blind merge mining, but how, they actually get paid how low on layer can one. these fees be if you're they paying can be them? as low as one sat per transaction, or even if the sidechain has more degrees of more decimal points, they could be even lower. Well, how, well, so how would you pay, you know, two transactions that are one millionth of a sat each? Would that just round to zero or? The sidechain will have its own rules. The sidechain has its own rules. And uh, but, well, I can maybe explain how blind merge mining works, but I don't know if that will help. If people don't know how regular merge mining works, then they may not understand uh, what I changed about it to make it blind. Why don't you explain merge mining and then blind merge mining? Yeah, sure. Merge mining was invented by Satoshi in 2010 to co and he co-invented the Namecoin, which is really the first uh, altcoin. And Namecoin is its own project that has enormous benefits that we at uh, this company, Layer 2 Labs, we will uh, show it to the world. And I actually think it, it will be the future backbone of the internet. And uh, it's like one of the other big disappointments of Bitcoin is everyone dropping the ball on Namecoin. Uh, Namecoin is super cool. But the point is Satoshi invented merge mining to help Namecoin out back in 2010. And what merge mining does is it is counterintuitively, it, it allows Namecoin to rise along in Bitcoin's proof of work, and it allows Bitcoin miners to collect Namecoin NMC, which was an altcoin, still is. It allows them to collect that and find both blocks simultaneously without doing any additional hashing. They do a little bit of extra computation on the node side, but they don't have to do any extra hashing, which is where all the expense is, of course the ASICs and the electricity. So they just prepare the block a different way and you can mine two blocks at once. Now, very counterintuitively, you'd think that you'd have to modify the host BTC. But they have to run a Namecoin node, right? The pool does? Right. And so it's counterintuitive, but actually you, the host cannot stop this from happening. It has no way of even blocking this. And it's actually the, the guest that is the modification to use merge mining instead of regular merge mining. And it, 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 it because the guest constructs its block in a way that half of the block's header is the Bitcoin header. So who is the host and who is the guest? BTC is the host and Namecoin is the guest. And was merge mining a BIP or a change that Satoshi made? There were no BIPs uh, back then. Satoshi, again, as I'm, as I'm trying to explain, the host cannot even stop merge mining. So there is no change to the host. So there's no BIP. What I'm asking is, did Satoshi make a change to the Bitcoin code base to enable merged mining so that Namecoin could exist? Or did everyone just realize, oh, wait, you could do this merge mining thing with what's here? Someone else uh, proposed it and someone else actually proposed that Bitcoin be modified so that and the, the actual idea is generalizing is called the, the name of the thread on Bitcoin talk was BitDNS, which was the original name for Namecoin, BitDNS domain name system, BitDNS and generalizing Bitcoin. And they proposed actually a change that Bitcoin's Merkle tree would instead be its own tree of different blockchain headers and that we would have many different merged mind uh, blockchains all writing in the same header and then i don't remember exactly the order of who came up with what idea but they just folded this into a coinbase op return satoshi participated in this conversation and he uh was instrumental in convincing everyone how it would explaining how it would work and uh, that it would work it is very counterintuitive the way it works is very strange it's like it literally like a train it's like you're clipping more 
car box cars onto a train and the train speeds up and uses less fuel. Very bizarre. Yeah, that's pretty mind bending. Do we need to get further into that or can we explain blind merge mining now? Well, um, again, I would stress that why it's counterintuitive is that you what you actually do is you run the Namecoin software and it generates the Namecoin block in a way that part of it is a valid Bitcoin block. And that's why you get two for one. So that part is doing extra work. But the miners who are just doing the hashing, they get paid twice for the same hash because they're the instrumental part. So as long as the merge mined altcoin token doesn't become completely valueless so that the fees from those transactions are worth nothing, then the miner will perhaps have an incentive to run the merge mining software or the, the pool operator. And in fact, um, Slush Pool, the oldest pool now called Brains for some reason, I don't know why, um, they, they advertised that they did a lot of merge mining and they would always sell, automatically sell the altcoin and then for Bitcoin and credit people. So they were very upfront about the fact that they did this and they that you would get more money for doing so. And it was even a time when the Namecoin, the whole Namecoin block was worth like four and a half dollars and the Bitcoin block was worth like six, seven thousand dollars, something like that. Just thousands of dollars versus single dollars. So it's one one thousandth. And uh, even then, uh, you know, 55, 56 percent of the network would merge mine Namecoin, even though it was only a tiny bit of extra money, both in a relative and absolute sense, very small, but still they did it. If it's four dollars every 10 minutes, then it's worth running That's a right. small VPS that does that, right? Most people did it, even though the reward was very small, but it was not zero. Sometimes it was it cost very costly because actually the Namecoin software would sometimes, it was much buggier and the Bitcoin software would sometimes crash. And then it would sometimes, if the if there's, you know, 30 seconds of downtime, every cycle is 600 seconds, that's 10 minutes. So you actually, <laughs> you actually lose a lot if the software crashes. You would think that it would crash once and then they would rage quit that software and only mine Bitcoin. I think the pools had a much, they figured out a much better way of coming compartmentalizing it all so that if it crashed, it would only take down its, its part. So blind merge mining, they don't even need to run the node. What happens is anyone who's running a node can just tell you what the which hash Merkle root, what to ins what to insert, what hash to insert into layer one in the special location. And then uh, if they do that, then you find the block. And if they don't, then you don't. So what you do is the sidechain node assembles the block, paying themselves the transaction fees. And then on layer one, they make a trend. This is the BIP 301 part. They make a transaction that says, if my block is in, if, if you put my hash in this block, then pay this amount to the miners. But otherwise, don't even include this transaction in a block. This transaction never happened. This is invalid. So they have to be a pair. The hash, finding the sidechain block, and the layer one transaction. So the layer one transaction paying the miners layer one coins. So it could be like they get nine. The block maybe is worth seven Bitcoin, but then they get paid 6.99 on layer one because they actually get a little bit of a discount because maybe they... They lose layer one coins, but they only get layer two coins. And so, but whatever it is, it's a, it should be an equilibrium that is uh, makes it basically equal value. Does the sidechain node operator have a Bitcoin wallet that they're using to pay the miners to mine the sidechain node? Yes, this is part of the observation of blind merge mining is that in the sidechain case, at least everyone who is running a layer two, everyone who's running a sidechain 
is running a layer one full node. It's like not possible. It's like a lightning node where it's not possible to run a sidechain node without layer one node. So everyone actually has layer one node and they probably have layer one coins because you don't really keep 100% of your net worth on the sidechain or at least some people. All I need is one or two people out of the whole network. So I'm just betting that some people will have coins on both networks and that they'll want a tiny little yield, basically. That seems reasonable. Right. So you just need one person who has some coins on both networks and then they they click the mine the the blind merge mine button, you know, they enable it, they start click start on the sidechain, and then it makes layer one transactions. Now almost all of these will be invalid and never included in a block. These are like bids. They say, Oh, I'll pay six point eight Bitcoin for the hash. If you pick my hash, I'll pay six point eight one, I'll pay six point eight two. And only one of these can be included for per sidechain slot. And only one of these transactions is mined every 30 every 120 days or 90 days no 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 this is every 10 minutes this is why there's two different bips because some things happen every 10 minutes and some things happen rarely the withdrawals are rare but this is not rare this is just merge mining and again merge mining is old merge mining is from 2010 merge mining was invented by satoshi i don't think there's really any controversy about merge mining that i'm aware of that has any significance because it's already it's already been happening for a long time. Oh, that's interesting. See, I, I guess I completely didn't understand that the last time we talked. So the sidechain does have a constant on-chain footprint. Yeah, it's, but it's just 32 bytes affixed each 10 minutes. So it's that's like 0.002% or something <laughs> of the 4 million bytes. Well, we could ever divide whatever that is, divide 32 into 4 million per sidechain though. So if there were 256 sidechains, there would still be some, but that's very small, as you can tell, basically zero. But it's not actually zero, but it's de minimis. But that's also true for any altcoin in namecoin merge mining, which already happens also. Okay, so I think that's kind of a, I think that's a good explanation of how a drive chain works and the very small on-chain footprint represents potentially massive activity on the drive chain. But what is Thunder? Because Thunder seems to be another idea that grows on this concept of drive chain sidechains. So Thunder is, a, it is the name of a specific piece of software, but it's also really just this I, name of an idea, the large block sidechain scaling strategy. And so I think the first thing you have to like open your mind to the idea is either what some people want to do is they want to say, we're going to make Bitcoin works for seven or seven, three to seven transactions per second. And we're going to try to increase that number until we hit eight million people in the world, which is like, you know, the obvious strategy of we want everyone to use Bitcoin and we want people to do well. We want to improve the technology. The philosophy with Thunder is more like there's 8 billion people who transact this much. Right now, let's just imagine they're all Bitcoin users. What percentage of them is custodial? Where right now that would be like 99.999%. And we'll say, how do we get that number down as much as possible? And we don't care if it's not perfect because you know what else isn't perfect? Custodial. In fact, custodial is basically the worst. So that's kind of like the starting point of the differences in philosophy. Are 99.99% of Bitcoin users custodial? I'm talking all 8 billion people using it tomorrow. That would be the only way. Right, but that's not how adoption is going to work. It's going to be a, a much slower process. 
Right, but I'm just talking about the design philosophy. Okay. I'm saying you got to get 8 billion people on. How do you do it? Okay, the plan A is actually custodial, but that sucks. How do we replace that with a different plan <laughs> that's better? You know what I mean? You know, it's really interesting. I was talking to Obi, the Fediment guy. You know, he's like behind, he's funding Feddy or something. You know, do you know who I'm talking about? Yes, I know. Yes, I know him. Yes. Okay. Yes. And we were talking, I mean, you know, after I had that conversation with you, every, everyone I met, I was like, hey, do you know about drive chains? And they were just like, <laughs> oh my God, I know about drive chains. Shut up. And his critique, which really seems to be a critique of custodial Bitcoin, just to turn it on its head, was that drive chains could be so popular that the security model might not work. Whereas we know that custodial Bitcoin is super popular and Fetty is kind of a custodial option with potential privacy, I guess. And I wonder if you agree that there might be a scale at which a drive chain is potentially not safe. Like if there's a million Bitcoins in a drive chain, is it is like, is there a number? do you think where minor collusion suddenly is likely you want the ratio of like you want it to be producing tons of the ideal the absolutely ideal bit 300 security situation would be the sidechain pays tons of transaction fees all the time so it has lots and lots of usage it doesn't have that many coins on it so it's a few coins that turn over very rapidly and it also it provides some kind of amazing service that the coin holders want so something like a zcash sidechain that has extra privacy it would be to the point where if miners stole from it people would say oh we'll never get this we I, we thought that we had a coin that I had the option of using private ZK Snark Z addresses. But now it looks like BIP300 isn't going to work. So my coin doesn't have this power anymore. And I, I shed a tear. And so the. And so, and so I'm never going to drive chain again. That's it. And now the miners are sad. So no, no one will drive chain again. And now the, we lose this. And so then the, the Bitcoin price also would go down because people thought, okay, we have everything figured out. But then we're like, wait a minute. No, we don't. Uh, so that would be the ideal thing is very high transaction fees and not that many coins on the, the drive chain. So much better for spending than saving. And uh, so that would be the ideal configuration. I think in general, the more popular the chain, by far the more secure it would be. Uh, if I don't see if someone is going to put the coins on the chain and not move them at all, I think that person would move them to layer one. So I actually think just naturally layer one would have the diehard savers, uh, which is as it should be. And then the people who are willing to be a little more experimental, take a little bit of risk would be on layer two. Because again, this is the thing that I'm trying to get in my, get into people's heads is that everything has a risk. So like the risk of doing nothing is that everyone does custodial, which is a huge risk. So that's not good. So the point is, can we just imagine 8 billion people are using, they seriously use Bitcoin for every single thing, coffee, they get paid in it, everything, taxes, whatever. And how how would that work tomorrow? But you, it's non-negotiable. Well, it would be custodial tomorrow. But actually, with this, you could just do it with like you know nine large block uh, side chains that you know of a certain size. That's not even that big, and then that would uh, just cover it. And this is Thunder. Thunder is multiple large block side chains, and you have a blog post that describes this. And in your blog post, these drive chains are actually geographically organized. There's a drive chain for North America. There's an A 
Asia drive chain. Why is that? Any trade that crosses chains, it's the same person but doing an accounting error, but it must appear in both both chains and possibly L1, which is the disaster we're trying to avoid. We're trying to leave layer one alone. We do not even want people transacting there if they can help it. We want all the transaction fees to go there with all the revenues hold, to go there, hold on. but we don't want... Yes. So you're making the observation that most transactions happen with people who are in the same area. Therefore, they'd want to be on the same side chain. And you're not going to have the network effects of a international Bitcoin blockchain, but you can do a lot of transactions in your sort of regional chain. And then you can either sell regional drive chain coins to someone to get them on another chain, which is kind of similar to doing foreign exchange or Right. You're very likely to have a circuit, you know, in your where it's like your employer is in the North America chain, you and also where you spend your money, you know, your favorite bar, your your whatever, your Amazon <laughs> like node or whatever it is. Where you spend your money and where you earn your money are probably going to be on the same circuit. So the turnover will be within the chain and then you won't have to go you won't have to leave you don't have to go to a different chain or go to l1 that's pretty straightforward a lot of it will just net itself out and it'll just take care of itself so the core idea of thunder is make drive chains potentially make them regional is there additional technology or is it just this structure it's more the idea but i i think there there are a lot of opportunities so one thing i write in the post is that we wouldn't have to just deploy them all on day one, what you would do is you'd start with one large block sidechain. This is another key thing to keep in mind is the difference between this strategy and the naive large blockism, which was large mandatory large blocks on layer one. That was a very mistaken strategy, but this is a different strategy. This is optional layer two block. Um, but we would start is like one single sidechain, whatever, eight megabyte block, maybe 10 megabyte blocks, where the block size grows geometrically over time. Maybe it grows from eight megabytes to 800 megabytes over 10 years. So you just start with one. One that's bigger and grows, but not not that big, you know, because already we've moved from one to four megabytes in Bitcoin Core. So, you know, and internet technology improves all the time. Hard drive technology improves all the time. Again, this is the difference between on layer one, you're really betting everything on that. But with this, you're just being a little open-minded to it. You're saying, listen, we this this will work if if internet speeds and stuff continue to improve. Eh, maybe it won't. And then in which case we go back to L1. So it's a really night and day difference between naive large blockism. Uh, and then another difference, conceptual difference, before I continue my explanation, is that I have that metaphor of the, the airplane where there's a first class and there's economy. And I say the large block sidechain is like economy. It's it's cheaper to use, but the experience isn't as good. But it's not supposed to be as good. You know, you can pay. You can still go to first class on the layer one Bitcoin if you want to pay a higher fee, but and have more security and have a better experience. So you can all you can always. No one's saying that you shouldn't be able to do that. I think feel free to do that whenever you like. I encourage that. <laughs> I disagree with the metaphor because the idea of the large block sidechain is it's a much better experience, lower fees, potentially faster block times, maybe? Well, maybe. Uh, it's hard with merge mining too, but it is possible, but it's just clunky to change the interblock time. The The reason why it's worse is because the you have a slightly less security and slightly less uh, finality because you have the risk that the uh, coins will um, be stolen by the miners, which I think is a very small risk, but it is still there. Um, versus layer one where there is no such risk. Uh, I mean, I think there's really no risk in either case, but, but it would still be there. And it's, of course, a newer idea. Every newer idea is 
riskier in some way. But yeah, many of the experiences would be better because of the lower fees. In fact, there would be more, probably more users and it would actually be, you want to, you want to get paid on the same network that you're paying people out on. So it's quite possible that the sidechain will have features that make it better. So let me talk about those features now, which is that we start with one eight megabyte that grows to 800 megabytes over 10 years, which is a long time. The idea for this gradual growth is we don't know if there is going to be demand initially. So yeah, at first, there's probably not that much demand, you know, but we will have we make sure that there's plenty of space and we wait for the, basically the blocks to fill up reliably. Um, we, we, we use our human brains to just look at the situation. <laughs> but all the time, we keep, a, we keep a wish list, a hard fork wish list. We say, what are the things we regret when we launched this 8 megabyte? Oh, if only we had done Schnorr signatures, if only we had done any priv out, if only we had done whatever, if only we had done fraud proofs, if only we had done uh, whatever, transaction uh, parallel, whatever, parallelization of block validation. So you just you just keep working on the technology and you you upgrade and you support that software for a while it's kind of like a little bit a little bit kind of like windows where you know they support it for a while but then every 5 or so years or whatever it is every 3 years that one starts to get full it's time to release a second one well, you start that one off at whatever it could start off at 8 megabytes or if the first one is at 40 megabytes now then maybe you start this one off at 40 megabytes or if it's at 16 i don't know if it's going to grow at a geometric rate then honestly it'll be still pretty small because it'll cover half its distance in the final period. So um, you start the second one off, but the second one has all the all the features you wish you had baked in it from the beginning. And then same story when you do the third one a couple years after that, and the fourth one, you just start launching them, and they just kind of they'll naturally fall into geographic all by themselves. They'll naturally just clump up. Right, and because this doesn't affect layer one, you can even retire a drive chain and say, hey, you could, yes, we're going to retire this thing. You knew that the security wasn't as good as Bitcoin layer one. So if you're in a coma, sucks to be you, you need to move these coins, right? Right. And again, I don't really think that 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 kind of a disaster would happen, but that's an excellent way of pointing out like the whole the whole area, like why my treatment of it being slightly more casual you have to contrast this with like a custodial wallet. That's what this is. That's the frame is like custodial is bad. Custodial is the only option. Custodial is terrible. This version is way better and it, it can reach any scale immediately. And the nodes are expensive because the, the blocks will be big. But I do the math at the end of the article. I say, actually, they'll be expensive, but it, it's really not like it's not that expensive. It's not like impossibly expensive. It's just it's just more expensive. It's just inconveniently expensive. But there'll be plenty of people. And the, the, as far as technology, uh, I actually think uh, fraud proofs would be possible so that the light clients would be better protected against full nodes that lie to them. Very protected. So even though the full nodes would be expensive and fewer in number, the light clients would be protected. They would be, you know, as long as a couple exist, the whole network would mostly work. Do you mean that fraud proofs could be built in at a protocol level or just that? That is what I mean. I've already designed that, uh, in fact. So, and the so- we have actually already produced some software. We haven't released it yet, but but yeah, we, I mean, one thing we hope to do, which I always wanted to do, and I we're slowly getting there. I know I teased it, I teased the announcement, but then we started working on it ourselves. And but we plan to release the version of the Thunder sidechain, and then we plan to offer a contest to see how uh, if anyone can who can increase the performance the most, the like the actual like CPU speed and even the 
size of of each of the total blockchain size and we have like a transaction randomizer and all this other stuff so it just makes giant blocks at random and we'll have it we'll give everyone the same seed randomness and we'll see so i don't know when we'll do this because we ended up working on it a lot ourselves internally but uh but that's something i'd like to do to just make sure that we're actually on the the cutting edge of what of like how quickly a large block could be validated um can't do anything really about the bandwidth but last time we spoke i kind of felt like wow this is really interesting Interesting, but this is such a big change. Or is it a big change? I think you argue that it's not a big change to Bitcoin at all. And especially if you think about... Well, the details, it isn't. But the philosophy of Bitcoin, it, it might be, right? It's philosophically very radical. But now you have a company that's raised money. Can you talk about that and how that is part of your plan to bring drive chains and prediction markets to the world? Yeah, the company, uh, all the investors and the co-founders, uh, or most of them at least, I think... Uh, maybe the, at least the vast majority maybe like two exceptions are everyone is like a bitcoiner with like more than 10 years of experience so i have gathered some people who together who um they either think that this idea is like a really really good or they just at least they think it's just so good that it's worth trying like um you know good enough to try and uh yes yeah, so we raised this money and we plan on um doing a lot of education and outreach and software development and what is the name of your company? The company is Layer 2 Labs and uh, layer2labs.com. And uh, give us a visit. And the goal is to really, um, the summary is we want to make every transaction in the world a, a Bitcoin transaction. And we're going to just start by copying all the altcoins. So we have cloned a version of Ethereum and a version of Zcash. That is like an exact clone of the latest altcoin full node software so that uh, our software does everything they can do. Um, and we also will make this large block sidechain thing. We at first we were going to clone like Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV, which we still might end up doing that. But I don't know. I kind of just thought we could actually do a little bit better by just focusing totally on performance. And I actually think that the what the some of the stuff they've done. I, I honestly think uh, we well, one of the things we did is we have now we have a Rust. We have a complete rewrite of the sidechain template in Rust. That's just like I think like two thousand lines of code total. And uh, so that is like, I think, going to help uh, a lot. But but yeah, the company, we're going to clone all the altcoins, and then we're going to clone all the fiat systems, uh, and we're going to make them all. We're going to try to make them all like on blockchain procedural type of a thing with no identities, no like, you know, all peer to peer, etc. We're going to run a test net, and it's going to be so cool that Bitcoiners will finally be, gosh, we need to merge BIPs 300 and 301. Yes, we currently have like a, a fork of Bitcoin running uh, for testing purposes and demo purposes. And that's what we have. And people can download that. And we we we, we improve the software all the time. So it, uh, uh, I think that uh, give it a go to um, layer2labs.com and you can download the software and try for yourself. But soon, if you don't like, if you feel free to wait <laughs> as long as possible before doing that because we we improve it all the time so you always get a better version if you just wait a week and a half you can join us at uh, t.me slash dc insiders that's the telegram where we hang out and uh, so that's the goal is to make this demo of what could be done and we will not only do these altcoin clones but we will also do 
Namecoin and Truthcoin Hivemind, the prediction market project, and Thunder and all these other things. We have a we have actually have a bit asset sidechain, which is basically lets you do like NFTs or or like digital stock, like ICO type things, which is of course very weird activity. But I think uh people it's popular. People like this type of thing. They like the idea and we just built it into we have a graphical interface where you just click buttons and you you can make your own coin, you know, Bitcoin dad coin. And I, I see the appeal of that, honestly. I think that's, you know, it's kind of silly. It's definitely not as serious as other things, but I, I we aim for pluralism. I, my view is the customer is always right, you know, and the user, we ought to empower the end user. And if they want something, if you have a situation where software developer wants to make some software, a miner wants to mine a transaction, a user wants to pay the transaction fee to broadcast it, people want to run the full node software. If you live in that world where all those four things overlap, then... Yeah, we want that to be a Bitcoin transaction. We want that transaction fee to go to Bitcoin miners to increase the security budget. We want more people using Bitcoin to do things in their lives. We definitely want the Namecoin sidechain. I definitely want the prediction market, you know, like digital um, synthetic event derivative marketplace. And yeah, I think why not have bid assets? Why not have NFTs on Bitcoin? Look at how popular, you know, ordinals and stuff uh, are and uh, look at how much, you know, people like to have fun. There's just if people are willing to pay. They should pay and it should be sequestered on its own piece of software far away from layer one. Do you see the ordinal community as a potential source of support for BIP 300 and 301? Because I'm just wondering how politically it plays out. I think your description of the sort of political fracturing and issues of stagnation and ossification after the block size wars, you know, there, there seems to be some truth to that. So what is the path forward? How do we, how does Bitcoin shake off the last five years of inaction and actually make a change? It's a very important question because I actually, this is the only thing ever since, you know, I, as I told you, when I first heard about Bitcoin, I was like, immediately, I thought, I was like, this is too late. I, and it's already, <laughs> it's already going to win. It's already taken over. Uh, the only thing that has worried me is the, the, the overconfidence of the last five years. And I think that is, there's no limit. You just look at, you know, no offense to Mr. George Lucas, but you just look at like Star Wars episode one or something where it's like this sheer amount of just overconfidence that everyone thought there's no way this can go wrong. George Lucas, he has total control over the project and people just really hated it. You know, <laughs> it's just not very good. That's actually a little frightening, that metaphor, because it was his wife who was the incredible cinematographer and editor who actually got an Oscar. I've heard that she saved it in editing. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I heard. <laughs> she has an Oscar for her editing. He never got an, I mean, maybe he got like a lifetime achievement award or something like he she's the credentialed party. And then, of course, John Williams came in with the music, which is always like 60% of them of the movie is always like the music. It's really an opera. There's like this whole era of movies where I'll walk by my wife and she's watching a movie on the couch and I just hear this classical music coming out and I'm like, oh, it's got to be Indiana Jones or Star Wars or something. The music makes a big deal. There's a you can go on YouTube and like watch scenes where they cut the music and you the comparison and you're like, wow, without the music, it sucks. It's no good at all. Music's really making it work. Even something like, you know, I was like, someone should do that with like White Lotus without the music because the music is really pulling its weight. What's, what's White Lotus? Oh, it's a show, HBO show. Oh, right. Okay. 
Uh, great music. <laughs> so the, this is the big problem is the overconfidence, I actually think. And there's no limit to how good of an idea you can kill with overconfidence. And I think, so you go to layer2labs.com slash friends. There we have collected tweets from all of these supporters, which we have many supporters. Adam Back, Fiat Joff. Fiat Joff is a huge supporter of ours. So so we have a huge list. And if you tweet, uh, I support DriveChain or I support BIP300 or something, we have a like a bot that will catch it and then we'll add you to the list if you're a cool guy. <laughs> we'll add you to the list and we'll build up a big group. And uh, I think we build the grassroots support that way. And then we build the uh, support among the miners. I think uh, we'll start. I haven't, I've avoided doing that because of Segwit2x and certain uh, dramatic hangovers, but I think that's about to like stop basically. So now I think we're in the mood to look at activation again. Another thing that happened is people hated CTV, BIP 119, but they had no idea what they were talking about. Yeah. And, and everyone loves CTV. Now everyone loves it because of ARC and they just decided they love it now. So now this has shown everyone, at least I think in the audience, how fickle this whole thing is and how how honestly possessed and obsessed it was with just reject, xenophobically rejecting all changes, which was the lesson of Segwit2x was just, it wasn't, the lesson of Segwit2x wasn't, there were two sides. One side had just worse arguments. It was not as smart, so they lost. The lesson of Segwit2x was something like, they tried to change Bitcoin and we fought them off. Uh, that was the wrong lesson. But people applied it to CTV and in 2019, and now four years later, <laughs> now everyone's decided they like CTV. So this opens the door. I think people will actually learn the new lesson, and they'll they, maybe even the pendulum will swing to be people being too open-minded. But either way, it's going to swing. It can't really get any more closed-minded or pessimistic than it is now. And uh, But yeah, one thing I worry about is the premature ossification of Bitcoin. I think ossification is actually very healthy and inevitable, but I do think uh, you should want, everyone should watch Jameson Lopp's numerous talks on this because he has enormous firsthand experience working with email, SMTP. And partly it's a story of the block size, about how it's good to keep the block size small, which is interesting, but there's a lot of nuance to it because the other part is the protocol did not change to meet the needs of the end user. Notably, it never implemented Hashcash to deter spam. And since it didn't, what happened was the big email, and no one can run their own email server, and all the email servers were based on reputation now, and the spam filtering is all manual, and they, they scan your email to like read for like Viagra or key, keywords and things. <laughs> They're reading your email to like, so it's ridiculous. It's complete failure. What is that term? Like, it's like a malicious... It's it's not a consensus, but it's like secret consensus that can be enforced. Oh, yeah, like a deniable consensus. Yeah, I don't remember the word for that, but there's something like it's like soft power or something. Yeah. But yeah, it's like a deniable hierarchy where they just say there's no rules, but actually there are. There's like a dark, dark, non-transparent set of rules. So this is also a lesson of, of ossification killing the protocol. And we see that when we see that all the people who use Nostr are using custodial lightning wallets or that people don't even know the difference between custodial and non-custodial lightning wallets. So we, so we see that and uh, that is not good. So that this is the only thing really that worries me about Bitcoin is getting too slow to activate um, this, you know, BIP300 basically or something like it. Uh, it doesn't really have to be BIP300 per se. Someone could propose something else that does the same thing in a good enough way, but I just know I've never seen any of that. All I hear is just uh, people who either endorse the idea or really misunderstand it. Uh, the misunderstandings are very bizarre. So like like the miners can steal idea that doesn't make any sense as a critique against BIP 300 because you're the end user and you can you can you can opt into whatever risks you want just don't send them to a BIP 300 sidechain if you don't want to 
don't send them to a custodial wallet. Don't send them to a lightning wallet if you don't want to keep them on layer one. You're really not affected. And then other people, I think, are just really, really confused about how merge mining works. I think there's really only 40, 40 or 50 people in the entire planet who actually understand it. But again, sidechains, they only use merge mining. I'm not inventing it. It's, we've, it's, we've been doing it for 13 years already. So this, those people just don't know. A lot of people just don't know what they're talking about. It's exactly the same as with CTV. People just thought they hated it, but they really didn't know what they were talking about. And now they're all going to love it. So what you're saying is with, with BIP301, it's just improving a thing that exists and it doesn't affect anything else. Yeah, 301 is very nice because the it, it further separates the sidechain node and the main chain miner. Right, it theoretically makes mining safer or better or something. Yeah, more modular, and it, it separates them out, and it lets the two separate entities work together trustlessly. So it's so if people really knew about it, they would not, uh, you know. But, but BIP three hundred one, it really it doesn't have. There's one guy. There's one guy out there who who loves BIP three hundred and does not like BIP three hundred one, and he's the only person who doesn't like BIP three hundred one, as far as I'm aware. It's this is this very intriguing guy, <laughs> but uh, I think he's confused also. I don't don't think he understands how far I went down the path of separating the main chain and the side chain. A lot of people think, a lot of people don't understand the whole point of BIP300 and 301 is to separate everything as cleanly as possible and to even make it so that anything that happens on the side chain has to pass through this big filter. That's why the side chain only reports one hash every three months. It's because if there's a dispute, it's just like a dispute about one thing and you don't have to get into these details. So it's designed to have them all very separate. I think it's just people misunderstanding. Well, what do you mean one hash every three months? I thought that the sidechain was putting a hash into the main chain every block. That's BIP301. But, but you see, these are different things. The BIP301 is which block is next, but it but it makes no comment at all on the validity of the block. So you can actually mine, a you can you can construct an invalid sidechain block that all the sidechain nodes will reject, pay money. And if the sidechain block is uh, is collecting, if the valid one would collect, uh, you know, eight Bitcoin in fees, people are bidding up 7.8, 7.81, 7.82, 7.83. You bid 7.85. You put your hash in layer one. The hash is useless to you. You will never get the eight Bitcoin on the sidechain nodes because they will reject the block. But you found a block, um, but you found a block, but it's invalid. So it's like a block that meets the difficulty adjustment, that meets the difficulty criteria on layer one, but is invalid. Because the difficulty criteria is you paid fees to put a hash into Bitcoin. Precisely. So the blind merge mining configuration is there's a bunch of hashes. Like if there's like eight active sidechains, there's like eight weird hashes in Coinbase op returns. And there's also eight transactions in the interior of the layer one block, eight transactions that are just paying huge amounts of money, you know, like eight Bitcoin or six Bitcoin or whatever, half a Bitcoin. And so there's like, because they pay the, t the sum of everything that has happened. Now, but again, the, in, this, in this part of the system, we are not checking any validity at all of anything. So it's completely, it's fully like, might as well be open timestamps or something. This speaks to the potential for miners to love this because miners love ordinals because of fees. Yeah, this is a key. You're absolutely right. So if I can just interrupt you to say that <laughs> the, the miners, uh, right now, the miners, 
they're in a situation where the fee, no matter what happens, all the, the total amount of what miners collect is the total fee revenue. Now that what is paid to the miners is paid from the users. So this is something of a tug of war situation. It's a win lose. Either the fees are high, in which case the miners are happy, the users are not happy, or the fees are low, in which case the users are happy, the miners are not happy. But if you allow for side chains and or merge mined altcoins, either way, but merge mined side chains are just better than merge mined altcoins because altcoins are annoying. It's annoying to have to switch coin units and have inflation past the 21 million coin limit, have these different coin types that have floating exchange rates. So if you have side chains, you have an unlimited expansion of the block space only uh, in an optional way, you know, that is not the layer one node never has to touch any of this. So the layer one node gets no re- responsibility to police these things. And yes. the side chain has to compete on being useful because if it, exactly if there's no demand for it, it's not safe, it's not valuable. It serves no purpose, yeah. right. So it's kind of like a free market type of a thing where you can start a restaurant. There's no guarantee that your restaurant will be, you know, profitable enough to make it. But that's what guarantees that actually most of the restaurants we visit are good. They have to be good enough to stay in business which is a good thing. Well, I mean, maybe where you customers. live. <laughs> so that miners want a situation where they can charge cheap fees on a high quantity of transactions. And that's what's best for everyone. And we might even get to the point where miners themselves fund either development of sidechains or, you know, like, you know, advertising or something, promotion of sidechains to get the usage up because they generate, generates revenues for them. Are you going to ruin the miners business model with open source software before they do that or after they do that? No, well, this is actually a case where the mining pools in competition with each other would have no... We want that. We don't want anyone to have an irreplaceable edge running a mining pool, but we do want, like, you want the stock price to always go up. So that can only happen if management continues to surprise you with new and better ideas, better even than you expected. Because once someone says, oh, Steve Jobs is so smart, he'll probably invent something next year. The stock price rises to account for that. But we want to at least give, instead of giving the miners what they have today, which is basically a certainty that they'll get no money in the future or a very small amount, we want to at least give them the opportunity to grow the revenues exponentially forever, which is what they do. They have that opportunity uh, with BIP 300 and BIP 301. So this is a case where it's not like their revenue really will go up if they draw in more customers. And even if I make it competitive, it'll be slices of a bigger and bigger pie. They grow the pie. I want to always grow the pie. And then if they grow the pie, then uh, they get more money. And they can even if they if they every time they grow it, they beat expectations or they just, you know, uh, they just grow it so rapidly that the difficulty adjustments can't keep up. Then even the difficulty adjustments, which would normally erase all profits and all expected profits, even those will not rise enough to delete all the revenues, which means that they'll have their profits will also grow exponentially forever. That is a possibility. But right now it's basically impossible. It's basically just certain that they all they have are these little ordinal games. And you see how excited they are about what I think is just a triviality in the sidechain world. Stuff like stuff like that would be happening every few weeks. It'd be a completely new thing, you know, name coin prediction markets, whatever. Okay, I think we should wrap it up. We've been talking for an hour forty. So do we have any anything else to cover? Does anything come to mind? Burning thoughts? Do you want to recommend a book? Maybe your favorite video game. My favorite video game? Mm, I do like a lot of video games. I, I'm, I've been waiting for a recommendation. You know, I was I was trying to lead you to it. Favorite? Uh, lately, I, well, you know, I really like watching the Ocarina of Time randomizer tournaments on YouTube, and I'm just fascinated by this idea. But that game will make no sense unless you were obsessed with Ocarina of Time, so you'd have to have been Gamer 1998. I love Ocarina of Time, but I don't know. 
I wouldn't say I'm obsessed. So yeah, it's this game. They shuffle the lo- all the item locations in the chests. So you like open a chest. You can like open a chest in whatever the Deku tree, and it'll be like the Megaton Hammer will be there. <laughs> and, but this could actually break the game. Like it's not necessarily completable. No, they, what they do is there's something called logic in the game, and what they do is the game carefully keeps track of where the which chests need which combinations of items to get to and so it will shuffle them such that the game is always completable and in fact it will then give you various hints and things and so what they do is they have people race they give people the same randomness seed and then they race to try and be the first to finish the game and it's i love it i think it's fantastic how can you do this nintendo hates it when people touch their stuff like isn't there a mario hitman like coming for everyone who participates in this well, they have a site that mods, if you have a ROM, it, they refuse to, their like legal position is they refuse to distribute or give any direction towards getting the ROM. But if you have the ROM, what they say is if you have the ROM and you check a box that says you really did, you really did buy Ocarina of Time at some point, <laughs> then you get the ROM, it's your, you provide the ROM and you check this box or something, and then it will mod the game for you. So you upload the ROM and then download the ROM again? Well, I mean, you get the ROM from, you know, the torrent world, you know, no, but, but the point is, as long as you were a real bona fide customer back in 1998, then I don't know, like, but yeah, it's true. Probably Nintendo would probably try to foolishly close it down because I actually think it's fat. The whole thing's fascinating and it has created this whole, well, that is, that is lovely community and there's commentators. So I think that's fascinating. Uh, as far as a, a real game, um, I don't know. I like, you know, I think civilization is a great game. I actually honestly think it's a decent model of <laughs> geopolitics often. I like, I really like civilization. I really like, I like SimCity. That's like a statist game because you must income tax people, but it's like a cool game. You don't set income tax to zero? Uh, when I, sometimes when I start the game, I set uh, some of them to get the industry in, but there's really just no way that you can <laughs> run the game. You got to build the power plant and everything, you know, <laughs> or it doesn't work. So uh, yeah, games, yeah, like games, uh, games are great. I'm more of a RPG game player. You could probably tell. Oh, RPG is great. I mean, I remember I growing up with a golden sun was great oh golden sun older yeah oh wow great game yeah music trying to think of what are the good rpgs i mean final fantasy of course you know it's funny i never played final fantasy i was always playing Baldur's gate i think my favorite rpg ever is probably vampire the masquerade 2 bloodlines if you haven't played that that's just incredible i've never even heard of that oh my god but i'll look it up it's like made (laughs) by the worst company ever but somehow it's a you need the fan. Sometimes uh, those people patch. have more freedom, you know? They yeah. have more freedom to uh, just do whatever. Okay, my hint play as a Malkavian. It's a game that gives you the opportunity to play as an insane character. I just love that. Okay, right. Vampires 2 something? Vampire Masquerade 2 yeah. Blood. I'll, I'll send you the link. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. You've been in Bitcoin for a long time, and you've had a plan for Bitcoin for a long time, and you haven't given up hope, and you're still moving towards that goal of sidechains, prediction markets. Is it because you believe that we're still early? And if so, what would you say to the new people? What should they do? Should they keep an open mind? If you're new, you, sh- you should be more open-minded now 
uh, than ever. But in a weird way, even though I kind of critique uh, Michael Saylor somewhat, and I think he's he has uh, absorbed and now reiterating most of this overconfidence and complacency, which I think is a big mistake. But um, he is sort of right about like there is no second best like yet. There is currently no second best. So the main competitors to Bitcoin all suck and are just most of them are most of those people doing stuff. Uh, I don't want to name too many names, but someone who's doing a big altcoin project, they're either someone like me who is been a Bitcoiner for a long time, and they, they have some weird idea that they think they can just flip and make a ton of Bitcoin for themselves, and they don't really... They, they kind of like believe in the idea somewhat, and they want to try it out, and they want to try it out for the tech, and their heart is in the right place in that way. But really, they have their savings in BTC. They have their investment in BTC, and they're just... They're, they sell this project for BTC. Yeah. Every altcoiner is a Bitcoiner. Have you ever met an altcoiner who was like, nah, I, I don't touch Bitcoin. It's either fiat money or this altcoin. There are a few that would be like, you know, like whatever, like a Vitalik or something. But I know that like Vitalik sold. I know he's a huge, he owns a lot of Bitcoin. I don't even know how much Ether, or I don't even know what the ratio is. So, so you have people like that, or you have some people who I really think are just like, they're psychologically, they're just so deluded and they're just a huge ego. And they really just think that um, their idea is, is so much better than the status quo. Uh, just the sauce. I mean, who are we talking about here? Is it? <laughs> okay, well, some of the second group are like what you might call like the professor coins, where you have these people who are big professors, and they really think that they're... Oh, is this like Hedera? Of, uh... That Hedera thing? <laughs> I lost, uh, a, I lost yeah, a friend over that. Stuff like that, uh, where they think, okay, I wrote this giant LaTeX paper about multiple, uh, my version of like Paxos distributed synchronization or something. And they just think, well, I'm so smart. I deserve to be the king of my own little universe. And then there's maybe other stuff where it's kind of just like a weird blend of that. Like EOS is like a weird blend of just like crazy people, scammers, idealists. Aren't <laughs> they? EOS people, like the biggest Bitcoin holders ever, like they raised a billion dollars or something and four four billion dollars <laughs> they raised four billion dollars of bitcoin like five years ago and then who are these people like is there a book about them i mean this is crazy well there's certain people like dan larimer who are like an early early bitcoiner and he he is the one that satoshi said that famous line to like i don't have time to explain it to you you know if you don't get it or whatever sorry <laughs> and uh and dan larimer later what people don't often they neglect to report is that dan larimer replied immediately and he said okay i get i understand it i get it so they leave about that part but he went on to do like all this weird extra stuff proto shares angel shares bit shares steam it whatever and then he like kind of landed in eos so he's just kind of like just doing these things but for a while i thought that these were all they had no future at all because bitcoin would do the sidechain but i was wrong about that because bitcoin is other than you know the work that i've done bitcoin has shown very little interest in doing the sidechain so that was just my mistake really and even though we should do the sidechain to capture all this we aren't and uh, so we um it's like they they were right to try their idea like and then sometimes there's something like monero which has or name coin monero uh something that serves a le absolutely legitimate reason for existing and um i guess zcash would fall into that group sometimes people just want to do the tech and so that's always okay I mean, these people are in a dilemma because it's like, what should they do? If you really like like SIA storage file coin, uh, mostly SIA, but it's like in storage, you want to try this idea. You like it. Your dilemma is you try to do it in Bitcoin, then you can't. And then they say, do it on an altcoin. You do it on an altcoin, then everyone says, you're 
pointer. So it's tough if you care about the technology to just do nothing. And that doing nothing is clearly a mistake. It would be, be much better if we had people like five or six, seven years ago. Sia. Do you mean Chia or is it Sia? No, but Chia is also an example of something that's worth trying. I don't think it's... Is it though? I mean, Chia is like, the whole argument was proof of work is so bad, so we're just going to trash hard drives instead of burning electricity. Aren't we so eco-friendly? Right. I think it's pointless. I think it's. I don't think Chia will succeed, and I think it will fall victim to the exact same argument I laid out about nothing is cheaper than proof of work, and I don't think it will do... I don't think it will achieve any of that. Uh, ironically, Sia and Chia interact, because Sia is the idea, like storage, of, of, sh- of loaning out your your hard drive space and internet connection so that you can like it's like a dropbox dropbox service enforced by the blockchain if they lose your files you can get them back and have you used it is it what's the footprint believe it or not i used it a little so what it does is it you there's two ways of using it is you use it as a user and you back up your files there or you use it as like a like a farmer or i forget what the exact term is but you you dedicate as much space as you want you say listen i'm not using because because the intriguing thing about it is when you buy a computer you rarely use 100 percent of the hard drive space and you rarely use 100 percent of the bandwidth because like at 4 a.m you're like not using it at all and the hard drive is usually starts mostly empty and then it rarely fills to the brim ever. So so it's actually the economics are actually sort of uh, plausible. There's a lot of free resource just about organizing who to give it to. And they have it. Uh, it's one tenth the cost of Amazon. Yeah. I mean, if you can throttle throttle it during peak hours. Right. Exactly. So uh, so the costs are low. And so that's so if you have this idea. So the, the intriguing interaction is that uh, Chia was supposed to say, like, this is why this will be better than proof of work. But after Sia goes mainstream, you know, come the revolution. After that, it will just be another financial cost and it will just be complete equilibrium again. And, you know, so, so, but yeah, those, but, but we should be more pluralist and we should try more things. It's in the world of software where people can invent so much at the drop of a hat and we should not, this idea that um, Bitcoin Core has it all figured out and everyone in Bitcoin Core is uh, basically um, infallible and Luke Dash Jr. knows everything that's going on in Ethereum and you can go line by line and find a reason why what they're doing is bad. That's not true. So uh, we should have more pluralism. People should try things. The, the trick is, and the other the other thing is, if people, even the people like uh, who want ossification, such as Michael Saylor, they don't actually have any plan. Um, they don't know how to achieve that. They just think oh, what I'll, I'll what I'll do is I'll just frown at every change, and that will be enough. But that's not going to work. It's Twitter communication. That's not very viable though, because what the, the smarter thing is to say if there is see like you can think of it like kind of like a uh like a government where if uh if the government misbehaves too much then the ruling party loses an election and if something goes really bad then there's like there's some process for like amending the constitution or something because if you you always use a a government voting example when we talk i was waiting for it yeah because it's about disputes you know the it's not like you know they have the uh the first amendment gives us the right to petition the government for redress of grievances <laughs> right but but there's it's not like there's going to be like 12 grievances and then we're done forever the the founders knew that there would always be grievances as the world progressed and changed there would be new grievances and they said this must be a right because the government can't fix a problem it doesn't know about so it must be a right that you have the right to at least complain 
complain and say, this is a grievance. And so uh, that's basically what Michael Saylor doesn't get. He thinks that it can just, you can just build a perfect thing and it's always going to work no matter what the operating system is, what the dependencies are, how the payments landscape changes, what the competitive landscape is. Like if someone invents something that is very Bitcoin-like or whatever, like will that always compete favorably with Bitcoin? I don't know why anyone would listen to Michael Saylor's opinion about a a piece of technology. I mean, he, he, he talks word salad when he's interviewed. It's embarrassing. I, I have trouble. It's kind of cringe. Well, he's copied many of our best memes and he's avoided many of our terrible memes. So he is actually kind of a gifted speaker. Sometimes though, he, uh, you know, some people have said that he is in the business of like, you know, building a cult around himself. And if so, he's succeeding admirably at that. So good for him. He's achieving whatever his goal is. Uh, he is new though. That's something that everyone should know. I think people whisper that too. They say like, well, yeah, he's new so i mean he got a little in deep in my opinion i mean you don't really want to take such a huge financial position in something that you haven't really thought about for a while he's technically down for a while but i think with the recent bull market he's now breaking even or something but uh, i think that uh yeah i mean um you go- classic bull market buyer yeah you go all in i respect that um i think you know never comment on bitcoin technology it's the hardest thing in the world to comment on you know, we know that Michael Saylor is going to listen to this. Hello, Mike. We know that you listen, of course. He boosts in all the time. He's always boosting in. Right. <laughs> so after he gets to this part, we can, just to be fair to him, the challenge, Mr. S- Mr. Saylor, is why don't you like, you know, why don't you present at like, present something technical at at, at TabConf or at uh, MIT Bitcoin Expo or something. And I think he went to MIT. He was a rocket scientist from MIT. So I'm sure they'll, I'm sure they'll have you present something technical, like, you know, something with, you know, equations or something on this on the screen that is about are you going to be in the audience with your pitchfork i mean what's the intonation no i just think like um i just think it's a different audience so that's what i think i just think it's a different audience if you have maybe a a closing remark that you could closing remark a book that i recommend i was just thinking that i was thinking that ezra klein what are three books that you'd like to recommend okay beginning of infinity by david deutsch um and elephant in the brain by robin hansen and Kevin Simler. Uh, and third book, uh, good luck with this book. It's, it takes, it takes, took me like two years to read, but it's one of the best books. There is The Strategy of Conflict by Tom Schelling, a game theory book. Although I actually wrote a little blog post that is like a summary that is much easier to read. So you could also... <laughs> is that on Truthcoin? Wait Coin? for that. You could read my... Yeah, on Truthcoin. Yeah, I'm going to publish. I haven't, re- I haven't published it yet. I wrote it, but it's like 99% done and I haven't edited it yet. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Hey, thanks for having me. And yeah, it's, it's, I'm glad we could do our yearly conversation. You can be a guest host again in the future. Okay, great.